2: Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. If there's one thing that I can say for certain, it's that when you learn to tell better stories, you change your life. And at thestorystudio.org, we've expanded our lineup of offerings. We have more six session courses, including our new advanced level storytelling course. We have more two day and one day workshops and the best storytelling faculty you can imagine with David Crabb Michelle Walson, and Don Frazier. Plus, as always, our online video lecture series, our one-on-one coaching over Skype, and our corporate consultations and workshops for business staffs. To find out more, just go to thestorystudio.org. And now a little message from our parent network, MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week, Bullseye features in-depth conversations with the creators of culture, the people who make the best music, films, television, books, whatever. You'll gain new insight into all-time greats like Dolly Parton, Judd Apatow, and Lily Tomlin, and you'll hear from up-and-comers you'd never have known about otherwise. It's a show about finding the good stuff in popular culture, the stuff that changes lives. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Okay, that is all. Now here's the show. kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Ryan Hemsworth behind me now. This is the first of two episodes from our trip to Norfolk, Virginia. We did a couple shows at the Norfolk Comedy Festival there and had a ridiculously fun time. Jeanette Rainey, Of the generic theater was a big help to me and the sketch comedy group the pushers they really showed me a great great time that weekend great community there and listen if you would like to help bring risk to your community if you have any connections to a comedy festival or any kind of arts festival or maybe a connection to a college campus Contact us at Kevin at Risk-Show.com. We love bringing the show into new communities. We're going to start off here with a stand-up comedian and storyteller down there in Norfolk. This is Billy Rame with a story we call The Squatter.
3: Good to be here, man. I took Kevin's class today, and storytelling is so much different than stand-up comedy. Because stand-up comedy, you're like, joke punchline, you know, fart, bigger fart. (laughs) It's pretty much how it is. But with Kevin and the way he works with you and stories, like, he he makes you dig deep inside yourself and be personal. And stand-up comedians, no matter what we say, make you laugh, we're probably hiding a lot and crying on the inside for most of our jokes. So thinking about a story, I'm like, okay, what can I do? What can I do? What's so personal to me that I can just you know, show myself and I'm very fucking shallow to begin with? <laughs> so this is a hard thing, but I thought fear. There's a side of all of us that makes us who we are today from the fear we had growing up. It could be any fear in the world that you had growing up, and it all stems from somewhere deep. Personally, I've always had a fear of pooping in public. Restrooms, restrooms, I'm sorry, public restrooms. If I'm gonna put this image in your head, at least it's gonna be the right image. You know what I mean? But I know you're thinking like, oh, that's idiotic, that's dumb, but let me give you a little bit of a backstory. I'm an only child, and after a few failed pregnancies, my mother had me at the age of 39 in 1979. So I am my mother's miracle baby. So I remember my mom has always been as wonderful a mother she is, and she always has been. She's always been very, very paranoid and very, um, oh my gosh, just terrified of germs and diseases. And now that I'm thinking about it, everything else in the world. But I remember as a kid when um, we were on road trips and I was just a wee little lad. I would say, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom. And it would take, we would pass countless exits before my mom would find a place deemable to stop. But even after we found that place to stop, I had to wait in the car for my mom to go inside and give it the white glove inspection. <laughs> Nothing but the best for her baby boy's tushy. You know? So there's the rhyme. My mom was a school teacher. And um, in elementary school, she admitted she put me in the same school that she taught at to have me closer to her. And it was a very, very, very poor elementary school. In fact, the boys' rooms didn't have any stalls whatsoever. There was toilets lining one side, sinks lining the other. And if you remember in elementary school, there was no raising your hand to go to the bathroom when you wanted there was designated bathroom breaks through the day. And when those bathroom breaks happened, all the class would go out to the restrooms, boys outside the boys' room, girls outside the girls. They would let however many in, and then when one child came out, the next child would go in. Which is usually not a big deal, but at my poor elementary school, if you actually had the bravery to perform this deed, you were on display in middle of everybody like some fucked up piece of think art. So that could be a reason, I think. But every day after school, while all the halls would clear and my mom was doing work, I would go around and find a place of solitude to do my duties. Well, one afternoon, after my daily perimeter check, I went inside the restroom and right about, when I was about to, uh, let's just say, empty the tank, the door swings open and in comes the sixth grade basketball team. Oh. Now, oh, oh. oh, oh. So the basketball team comes in, and of course they're sixth graders, so it's just all, ew, ew, look at a boy poop, and look at a boy poop, and the yells are so loud, the basketball coach comes in blowing his whistle, sees what's going on, and starts wrangling everybody out of the room, which I would have thanked them, but that douchebag was laughing louder than any of the kids themselves. (laughs) Could that be a reason? I don't know. My freshman year of high school, I was told by the doctors that I had IBS and Crohn's disease-like symptoms and colitis as well. So not only did I have this fear of public restrooms, now I had no control over when it was gonna go down or how it was gonna come out. But once again, my mom stepped in and she made a deal with the high school and the church that we attended right next door so every day at lunch, after I ate lunch, I could sneak over to the church and hail Mary my ass off. (laughs) Thanks, mom absolutely fantastic so now i can be a normal teenager right i can go ahead and live my teenage years and get destroyed by puberty like every other kid and i did i had the worst bowl cut ever it was perfect it was greasy it was just like molded from christ himself i had acne that would detonate when it came in contact with sunlight let's just say that i was at the back of the line when it came to being a cool kid all right i don't want all I went through it. So this brings me to um, all four years of high school were pretty much like that. I went over to the church to take a shit every single day at lunch. So May 1999, late May 1999, it was my senior year of high school, everything was going my way. I just got my first car. I had a really rad job at Blockbuster Video. (laughs) But more importantly, I just scored my first date Oh man, dude. I was so infatuated with this girl all four years in high school. She said she'd go out with me. I went out and I bought a nice shirt and some nice slacks. And you remember back in the 90s when swing music exploded back in the scene and those ridiculous Zoot Suit chains were the tits? I got one of those too. So the big night came. I drove over to her house, in my 88 Ford Tempo. I walked up to the door, I rang the doorbell. I went and I shook the father's hand. Hi, my name is Billy Ray. I'm here to pick up your daughter, just like a gentleman. The date was fantastic. First, we went out to dinner. We laughed, we learned about each other for the first time. Oh my god, it was fantastic. After dinner, we went and saw Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace. <laughs> Halfway through the date, she reaches over and she grabs my hand, and she starts doing this little rubby thingy where her thumb's rubbing the top of my thumb. For the first time, I thought the pimply-ass nerd kid was gonna win. And then I felt a sneeze come on. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Billy, 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 don't sneeze. If you sneeze, this rubby hand thingy, fucking rubbing thingy is over. It's donezo. Just don't sneeze. All right, all right, I won't sneeze. Hey, shit. Oh. Sh- shit. Literally. Oh. She says, bless you. And I'm thinking in my mind, you have no idea, girl. Just be cool, Billy, just be cool. So I uh, just get up, face her, walk slowly, leave the room, and nothing's gonna be, you know, you'll be okay. But my body had more panicky ideas, so I jump up out of the seat, the zoot suit chain catches the theater seat and rips my pants down the side. So by that time, my mind's like, oh, fuck it, run, bro. So I take out, off the theater, out the front doors, get in my car, and I leave her there. Tell me you do something different. (laughs) She called my house a few times after that, but I never wanted to talk to her because I didn't know if she knew what happened, and I didn't want to take that chance. I would rather be the douchebag that left her there besides the douchebag that shit right beside her during Phantom Menace. (laughs) I think sometimes the only way to get over fears is to shock yourself in such a way that you're so embarrassed that this fear doesn't even matter anymore. Last year, my wife had an opportunity to go to Shanghai, China and work for six weeks. Four weeks into that, me and a buddy hopped on a 15-hour flight, which, by the way, I didn't eat anything, because I was not going to be public enemy number one on that flight. But we hopped on a plane, and we went over there for 15 hours. We get there, and the thing about China is food over there is so different than over here. Even the Chinese food is completely different. And for somebody with a hair-trigger ass like myself, this is going to cause some issues. Every single meal that we wouldn't eat at, uh, immediately I would make my wife and my buddy hop in a cab, no matter how far we were from the hotel, and go back to the hotel so I can do my business. So the last night we're there... And this happens every single solitary meal for five days in a row, three meals a day. The last day we're there, we find the most amazing place on earth. It is a go-kart track. It is a bar. And they encourage you to do both of these things as much as possible. This is amazing. We drank all day. We raced go-karts all day. It was the best day I've ever had in my life. And, of course, after a while, you know, at the end of the day, dinner came. And, of course, after dinner, I'm like, well, that was a great day. Let's go ahead and uh, pack it up. And, uh, and my buddy is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Buddy, we just be doing this every single day for you. We eat you shit. We eat you shit. We have to get in the cab in between then. This is done. You're a 33-year-old man. It's just a poop, bro. It's just a poop. Go do it. I don't know if it was the liquid courage or not, but I got up from the table. I'm like, you're right, bro. I can do this. So I walk into the bathroom, and I walk to the bathroom, and as soon as I get there, I notice that there's four doors, two women's, two men's, and some Mandarin writing on it. I'm drunk. I'm like, fuck it. So I go inside one of the bathrooms. I walk up to the first stall, and I Van dam kick the door open, and there's nothing. Just a porcelain slab on the floor with a softball-sized hole in it. I'm like, all right, cool. So I walk over the next door and I kind of half-assed Van Dam kick it open, because I'm confused. And it's the same thing. Just a porcelain hole on the floor. And suddenly it hits me. it's like, Billy, this is a squatter. You know what a squatter is. You read about a squatter when you were doing research on Chinese and where to poop in China, your poop search. You know what a squatter is. And I'll be damned, Billy, if you're going to ruin your wife and friends awesome day at this wonderful place on earth all the way across the world cuz you got a shit. <laughs> so I walk in and the first thing I notice when I walk in I close the door there's nowhere to hang your pants. Look, we as Americans are so spoiled because we have toilets everywhere. With a little bit of effort, anyone can walk out and find a toilet. And there's no strategy with toilets. You just sit down and go. There's nothing. But a squatter takes game plan. It takes a little bit of effort. So you sit there and you realize you gotta have your pants on, that's fine. And then you're like, oh, how do I stand? Do I gotta lean, do I gotta, whatever? And then, I, I, let me get this way and make it better for you. And then there's like two little bars. You're like, oh, oh shit bars, great, okay, cool. <laughs> So you lean back on these bars, and you're like, and then it starts hitting, all the other things start hitting you. It's like, all right, Billy, your ass is right over the hole. You're going to do this? Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't push too hard or you're going to miss the hole, okay? But don't not not push because you're just going to trickle. You know what? Screw it. Just go. I felt like that I just conquered the biggest fear in the world, that the little five-year-old me was sitting right there in that stall with me going, Yeah. In mid-celebration, there's a knock at the door. And without being demeaning to Chinese people and their broken English in China, because they really, really try hard, he basically tells me that I'm in the shower section of the employee locker room. What do you do then? But I did muster up enough strength to ask him, like, hey man, can I have some paper, man? And the only thing I heard, and I think it's what he said, at least that's what my mind thinks he said, was, what, do you want to write an apology letter? And he walks out. Since then, I have never had a problem pooping in public, in public restrooms. Why? One, because I'm an American and we have toilets. But thank you very much, China. I appreciate it. And thank you guys very much. Good night.
2: Uh, now this has given me an idea I hope to someday get someone on risk to be able to tell the story of how he got over his fear of pooping in public but not meaning public restrooms <laughs> also Billy left out that someone else shit right in front of his girlfriend that would be George Lucas with uh, the Phantom
3: Menace <laughs>
2: Let me bring up our next storyteller. It's been a thrill to work with her and to meet her and everyone in this group. She is a member of the fabulous uh, sketch and improv group right here, the Pushers. So please welcome to the stage Tiffany Wilcott.
1: The story of my life is called, or one of the stories, is called, um, I think I'm turning Japanese. And I name that because it's about my sister and I. Uh, my sister's name is Simiko, and she's not at all Japanese. She's just named after a Japanese person that we knew. So, so I got asked all the time, is your sister Japanese? And I'd have to say, uh, no. Actually, she's not Japanese. She's my Irish twin. She's a year older than me, and Irish twins are siblings that are born about a year apart, and they look very similar to one another. I guess it was probably like our teenage years when people started confusing us a lot with one another, and our voices on the phone, nobody could tell us apart. And we would stare at each other in our room for, for a long time, and looking at each other and not seeing the resemblance at all, because she had blonde hair and blue eyes, and as you can see, I do not. <laughs> so... So it confused us, but we just accepted it. Um, And as we started getting older, we started using sun in. So my hair got blonder, and it just became more uh, that people couldn't tell us apart. She taught me how to put on um, makeup, clothes, tampons, shave my legs, everything that you needed to know to be a girl. When we were younger, we did everything together. We were always, always together. Um, And as we got into teenage years, our interests changed. So even though we shared a room, we were always in different spots. And um, then the boys started flowing in. And I would have to say the ratio between her male suitors and mine were definitely, hers were like a lot higher. Because she would have uh, boys calling all the time. And uh, she was never home, so I would answer the phone. Now, mind you, I've never seen most of these guys. I just knew them by their their voices. She had some that would call a bunch, and there was one. His name was Mike. And he would call every day, four or five times a day. He would call for months and months. And every time I would pick up the phone, he would say, um, and I remembered his voice because it was like this rough kind of northern type of voice, and he would say, uh, Yo, is Sameek there? And I would cringe, because I knew it was him. And I would tell him, no, she's not here. And he'd go, why are you playing with me, Meek? I know it's you. And I would have to try to convince this man, no, we are two separate people. We're not the same person. So I would hang up on him, and he would immediately call back. And of course, like any horror movie, you got to check out who's calling. So I would answer the phone, and the sixth cycle would just continue of me telling him, I'm not Samiko. So one day, the phone rings, I pick it up, and I hear, yo, is Samik there? And I was like, oh, joy, she actually is here. So I go upstairs to, uh, because our room was in the attic, I go upstairs, and I'm like, Samiko, um, the phone's for you. And she looks at me, and she's like, who is it? And out of instinct, I made the very big mistake and I could feel it like coming out slow where I was like, it's my hell no. Because the next thing that followed was, tell him I'm not here. And I looked at her and I was like, no, no, I'm not going to tell him that you're not here. You're going to get your ass off that chair and you're going to go answer your phone call. And she's like, no, no, I'm not. And this was like 20 minutes of us going, no, yes, no, yes. So I go downstairs with my tail between my legs, feeling frustrated, and go to pick up the phone, and my first instinct is, it's been 20 minutes. I'm pretty sure that this guy is not still on the phone. Again, like any horror movie, you got to check. I pick up the phone, I'm like, hello? And I hear, yo, Meek, is that you? And something uh, just clicked in my brain, and I said, Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I wanted to tell you that I think I'm in love with you. <laughs> and so what pursues from there is he's like, oh, yeah? What took you so long? And I say, well, now, mind you, I've never seen this guy in my life. But I knew her personality, her the types of boys she dated. And I've got to be honest with you. That's one thing we never cross streams with because she always liked this blue collar like really strong manly working men and my type was always like this really funny comedian um, men that didn't work at all (laughs) so 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 we never really crossed streams but I did know her type so um, when he asked what took you so long I did some shots in the dark and I said I don't like your hair and he's like, what's wrong with my hair? And I'm like, well, uh, it's, uh, it's too long. And he's like, oh, you know, I was thinking about getting it cut. And I'm like, oh, well, you know what really turns me on? Men with no hair at all. <laughs> Anywhere. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. I'm like, I think you should if you want this to work. And um, then I pursued on telling her. I made up a, a dude that I told him I loved tattoos, especially when they put um, my name on it. Well, Samiko's name on it. Um, I told him that I like leather jackets and motorcycles. And this conversation goes on, and he's just soaking it up. But about two days later, my sister was so pissed at me. And when my sister is mad, duck. Is, is, is all you got to do is duck. So she comes at me and she's like, did you get on the phone and pretend you were me? And I said, um, um, maybe. And she's like, um, what did you say? And and then I got scared and I said, "Um, it it was a personal conversation. (laughs) And, uh, And she said, did you tell him to cut his hair? Cause he has no hair anywhere. And I just started laughing. Just started laughing because I had no idea this guy would do it. And um, he never did get the tattoo, but he had made an appointment to get one, which he had canceled. And at this time, she was now able to convince him that we were two different people. So now he actually believed that she had a sister. He never called again, though. I mean, this is one way to get rid of, like, well, he's a harmless stalker, but it got rid of him. He never called again, and we forgot about it. And like I said, my sister and I, we were best friends when we were best friends, and we, we fought. It was like fierce. When we were really getting along, she would take me to this place, uh, Wildwood, New Jersey. And yeah, <laughs> there's a bar called the Garden State Bar that she took me to. And mind you, we were like 19, uh, 18 and 19 at the time. One day, um, like a proper bar patron, I was drinking a lot and on a table dancing. And my sister w- had left already. And uh, I looked down, and there's this this man standing there that um, was gorgeous. I mean, he was uh, tall, probably about six foot something. He had this, like, blonde hair, and he had these, like, chiseled Roman features, like Ken doll mixed with, like, Prince Charming. And he looks at me, and I look down at him, and he goes like that. And I had to look around because uh, I don't usually get hot guys. At at all. So I just went for it. I grabbed his hand, and he uh, got me off the table. The music was so loud that we didn't get to talk at all, really, but we had so much fun with, like, all nonverbal stuff, like dancing together, making fun of people dancing, or making fun of each other, and just kind of clicked, and I thought, oh, my God, I think I'm in love. (laughs) So um, as um, any proper girl would do, uh, we started shamelessly making out on the dance floor all night long. And we walk outside, and kind of lights come up, too. And he looks at me, and he goes, you look familiar. And I'm like, um, no, maybe I have one of those familiar faces. I don't care. Just keep kissing me. And um, he did. So uh, we were making out, and he, we go back to his place. And he takes me, and he lifts me up onto the kitchen counter. And um, ladies, that's probably the hottest thing that's ever happened to me it's just so hot and uh, we're making out more and he backs away and he's like no I swear you look familiar and I'm like no no um, I, I don't think I've ever met you and he's like come on quit playing with me and at that moment the click happened again and I looked at him and he looked at me he's like how'd you find out about the bar and I'm like um, my sister and he's like Samik and I was like oh my god You're Mike, aren't you? And he's like, yeah. You know how long it took me to grow my hair back? (laughs) Uh, That's how I felt. That's exactly how I felt. I started laughing. He was kind of mad. Um, (laughs) That's how I knew he never got the tattoo, but he was about to. Um, He he was about to sell his car and buy a motorcycle too. Uh, Thank God none of that happened. and so I started laughing, and then he started laughing, so thank God he kind of forgave me for it. And I was like, okay, let's get back to making out. And he's like, um, no, maybe I should take you home. And I was like, oh. So he walks me home, and we exchanged numbers, but he already had mine because he's <laughs> called it so many times. <laughs> and then we just parted ways. And I, probably the, one of the most silliest things that I've ever done is I um, stared at the phone for about a month hoping that he would call back. But still, even if he did, I wouldn't because the whole sister weirdness thing. So that is my story about um, my sister and I.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Tiffany So I think the lesson is, if anyone ever asks you if you will shave every hair off of your body, you might want to ask them if they could move the conversation with you over to Skype. (laughs) Just be on the safe side. Uh, Okay, I want to bring our last storyteller up to the stage. He is a writer in town. You can find him on Facebook at Peter Graves Roberts. Please welcome Pete Roberts. (laughs)
4: Let's start it out this way. I was about 33. Ten years ago, I'm in a bar in Asheville, North Carolina. And I was hanging out at a bar on kind of the nicer side of town. It's like a lot of frat guys in there with the pop pink collars. You know, they're all hollering at girls, that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting over at the corner of the bar. I was a regular. You know, it was like... Somebody told me it was called Norfolk style to drink Jack Daniels and then Coke, Jack Daniels and Coke like that. So that's what I was doing at the time. And I'm sitting there scribbling down this mad poetry and you know, trying to write this story that had happened to me a few nights before. And the conversation these, this herd of guys were having was, what was the last time you were really scared? Like, you know... Oh, I thought my girlfriend was pregnant, you know, or, you know, my parents are going to find out I spent the book money for school on weed, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, they're looking at me like, what do you think? And I'm like, I'm fucking gulping whiskey and chewing on cigarettes and scratching my little notepad. So flashing back, you know, in my early 20s, I wanted to be a rock star. You know, I left, I left Portsmouth on fire. I hit Ghent when I was 18. I got into a band in Norfolk. We played at Tux and all the cool places that is now where Old Dominion University has spread to. But uh, all those CD bars were great. And um, you know, when you're 20, the whole world's out there in front of you. I remember, if you could picture freedom, for me it was when I had six days after graduation moved out of my parents' house. I was living in Old Town and I had gone over to Norfolk, I was right there on Collie Avenue in Ghent, and I was standing on the sidewalk on a hot night like it would be tonight, right in front of the sweet shop, which is not there anymore, but I used to work there, and I just remember looking up at the stars in the sky and thinking, I don't have to go see my mom and dad. I can do anything I want, you know, and I didn't have a dime in my pocket, but I was free. So that went on, you know, I'd drop of the hat, make a trip to Boulder, Colorado, just on a drunk, uh, I quit a job, and that kind of snowballed, you know, to where by the time I'm in my mid-twenties, looking at 30, I'm thinking, if I don't make it at some point, you know, this is going to be the end of it, you know, because I, I wanted to be famous, and it, here I am. Um, but, you know, I, that's what you hear is, you know, I didn't get dates in high school. Maybe I should have gone to Portsmouth Catholic, but um, at church, I wasn't cool, you know, I, I just never got dates, and I figured the best way is, you know, you write poetry and learn how to play guitar, so... I learned how to do one fairly decently and the other one not very well at all. And uh, just kept plugging away at it, plugging away at it. And by the time I was like 27, 30, hanging out in Nashville, the music thing was looking like it was a bad idea. It wasn't gonna work and I had developed a pretty good whiskey habit, which, you know, Irish whiskey and my heritage go well. Um, so I was drinking too much whiskey, partying too much, and I had invested with a partner in a, in a restaurant. We decided, you know what? The best way to be rock stars is, we'll open a restaurant, we'll make millions of dollars and buy a music studio. You know? So that was the plan. Uh, that lasted about 18 months, cost me 80K. So my college education was three years 80K in restauranteering and real estate. Um, anyhow, all that's wrapping up. I, I see the end is near. You know, I, had, I had, at the time, I'm clean and sober now. At the time, I had a pretty good cocaine problem. And all it really did was make drinking more fun for longer. You know, that's, that's, that's all Coke did. So if you've never done it, don't do it. It's just stupid. Um, but there was this really crappy hotel in Asheville that was famous. It was called the Interstate Motel. $29, no tax. You know, and it was up at the top of a hill right outside my favorite bar. And this is the C D Bar, the really cool one where like the street people hang out and shit. So I'm hanging out there one night and I leave and I'm tanked and uh, I've got to be at work the next day a few minutes away. It's a $60 cab ride to get home and back and I'm not one to drink and drive, you know, at least I had that sense. And I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to the interstate motel. You know, I've been there a few times, but I wouldn't tell my friends about it, you know, because it's that kind of thing where they're like, oh, if you went to the interstate motel, you were either trying to get a hooker. You're trying to get some dope. you were doing something you shouldn't be doing if you're at the interstate motel. I mean, I had friends that lived around the corner. I could stay at their house. But being a writer, you like to go somewhere where there's a circus outside. You got hookers. You got their pimps. You got people that are te- selling drugs. You got cops coming in and out. It's like a really cool scene if you think you're Charles Bukowski and you're 33 years old. So... I go in there, and usually, as a rule, if you check into the interstate motel first of all, if you 're some little wannabe hipster from the bar down at the end of the fucking hill you 're a mark <laughs> you know if you're not one of the guys that regularly hangs out up there, they're like, Oh, new meat, <laughs> let's see what that guy's got so uh, i'm stumbling in there, drunk, get in my room, pull out my little red notebook, set it on the table, get ready to write, go down to the vending machine, get my coke for the night, and I'm drinking my coke, and you know. If there's a knock at the door in a place like this, you usually just ignore it. You don't look out the blinds, you don't open the windows, you don't do anything. Because people will come by and randomly knock to just try and see what they can get out of you. And that night, I guess it was sort of the end of my, you know, run. You know, I I was getting ready to close the restaurant. I was losing everything. I really wasn't thinking clearly. Clearly taken by the effects of uh, drink and so forth. And uh, here's a knock at the door. And uh, I thought, no, well, maybe it's something cool. I had 20 bucks left in my pocket, you know, I figured maybe I'd get a little corner bag or something. You know? So uh, I, I uh, opened the door and there's this little crack in the door, you know, I got the chain on. There's a really imposing guy standing outside, you know, just kind of a scraggly beard, looks kind of like a, a burning spear, <laughs> you know. But uh, instead of dreadlocks, had just kind of a nappy hairdo, big... Bomber jacket on, and it's like 80 degrees. Uh, baggy jeans, and you know, he's like, "Hey, what's up, man? You trying to party tonight?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah." He's like, "Well, man, I got some shit, but look, it's, it's cops out here. Let me in. Let me in." So I'm thinking, "All right, cool. I'm gonna get some shit, you know, <laughs> and keep this night going." So I open the door. I let him in. I turn around just to go grab my Pepsi. I hear the door slam behind me, and everything changes. This guy starts freaking the fuck out. He's like, so what the fuck's up, David? like, uh, David, I don't know, my name's Pete, man. I don't know who the fuck David is. No, dude, you just fucking raped my sister. Like, uh, no, no, I I, ain't, fuck that shit. I don't, rape is fucked up. I didn't rape anybody. No, dude, my sister, the fucking prostitute, right down, you raped her. She seen you come in here, said you look like the dude, David. I said, man, my name is Pete. I swear to fucking God, dude, I did not rape your sister. I'm drunk. I came up here to sleep it off, do a little writing, thought you had something to party with. Here you are. Next thing I know, he's got a gun out. And I mean, I'm from Portsmouth. I've seen guns. (laughs) And uh, this guy is pacing frantically. And all he keeps saying is, man, that's my fucking sister, man. somebody's going to get blasted. Somebody got to get fucking blasted. And he was pissed. And I'm like... Shit, he's like, you know, sit on sit on the bed. You know, I said, dude, my name is Pete. Well, show me your ID. So I pull out my wallet, you know, he just takes it from me. Goes in it, takes my $20, puts it in his pocket. Looks at my driver's license, sees my name is Pete, puts that in his pocket. All right, Pete, lay down on the bed. Right now, I'm thinking shit. So... I do what he tells me, i lay face down on the bed. And this hotel is fucked up, okay? It's one, no room service, like I said, 29 bucks. Everything in the room is tied down or bolted down. The notepad is bolted to the fucking table. Um, There's roaches dead in the bathtub, the toilet doesn't work. And and, uh, I'm laying there face down on the bed, and I thought about dying. You know, I've been on this Buddhist trip, and it's like, yeah, the fee, you know, fear of death is the ultimate fear. You don't want to get a cold. You don't want to go hungry because you're going to end up dying. It's like, fuck it, we're, we're going to die. So I wasn't afraid of dying. I had the pressure of this guy's gun in the fucking back of my head, forcing it down into a pillow. And him saying, somebody's going to get blasted, you know, the same shit. And I'm like thinking, okay, is this it? Uh, I haven't done anything yet. You know, I'm not a famous... <laughs> I can't die right here and all I'm thinking about is not dying two weeks from that night my brother's getting married and all I could think of was my mom like Chris like everybody you know my mom she was a great mom beat the shit out of me whenever I got out of line you know love her to death she's actually in Maryview hospital right now um living her last days uh and uh so don't fucking tell anybody that works at Maryview Hospital about Peter Roberts' drug story Um, anyway um, I'm really thinking what is my mom gonna think you know my brother's getting ready to get married this is gonna ruin it it's gonna be like me getting my head blown off in some flea bag hotel and I'm laying there smelling like mothballs and urine in this old fucking beat up bed the walls that might have once been a very lovely lemon yellow zest or eggshell were now kind of a taupe You know, and and you could see little teardrops, little little brown, glistening, almost lacquer-colored teardrops that were actually nicotine that had caked on the walls and run down and made little slug trails and collected in little globules down on the bottom. And I'm thinking, this is where it's gonna happen, huh? You know, I wasn't really afraid. It's gonna be a pop and I'm done, but my family's gonna be really fucked up. And at that time, the sirens keep going and keep going. And this guy's, you know, pacing. He's like, well, man, maybe you ain't the guy you know and, and i start thinking all right this is it this is live or die and i'm i'm searching my head i'm thinking of every jedi mind trick in the book and i didn't want to start limbs so slowly i kind of roll over and kind of come to a half seated position and i was like hey man um look you got my ID you got my 20 bucks i didn't fuck your sister you if you really if you're going to shoot somebody at least pull down my pants and smell my shit <laughs> And he looks at me like, what? I said, smell my dick, man. If I fucking fuck somebody, excuse me. You don't smell like it. You're going to fucking shoot me. I ain't, got, I ain't been up in your sister. Excuse me. And the guy looks at me like, this motherfucker is crazy. And I am. But uh, he, he, his, his whole demeanor just changed. You know, his shoulders dropped. He started looking at me with a different look in his face. And I don't know if he was just shaking me down about the whole thing or if his sister was really raped, but all of a sudden we had this kind of bond. And I'm like... I'm trying to get him toward the door. He's looking out. We're hearing sirens. It's a busy night, you know, a lot of activity in the fucking parking lot. And uh, he starts making his way over toward the door. And I've got a Walkman laying on the on the table. And, I mean, you know, you're thinking, you just had a gun to your head and he took $20 from me. He's looking at my Walkman. And it's like an old CD Walkman, you know. And it's like Led Zeppelin won the 30th copy in there. And I'm like, dude, don't fucking take my Walkman. And he's like, man, I don't want that shit. And uh, so... I'm literally, you know, pepping him up. Hey, I hope you find her, man. I hope hope you find the guy that got your sister. You know, that's fucked up. You know, I really hope you do. And he was like, well, all right, man. All right, look, I got to get up out of here. I got to get up out of here. So he opens the door. There's blue lights in the background, and it's probably looking to the few regulars around there that don't want to get kicked out. Like if y'all live around Portsmouth or Norfolk, y'all all the little quickie marts, you gotta get the people spare change because you can leave your car unlocked. And they don't want to get banned from the place they get cheap beer, so they'll look for your car. So this guy, you know, the people, somebody was gonna tell on this guy. And uh, with the door open, I'm just wanting him out. I'm like, he's almost gone. I'm sitting there, and, and he turns to me, and I stick my hand out, and he grabs my hand and pulls me in and hugs me. He was like, all right, Pete, you be good, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, you too, bro. Um, I hope you find that dude. You know, bam, shut the fucking door. And he's gone. So I sit down at the table with my Pepsi and light a cigarette and start writing in my book this little thing about how I just got almost got killed for attempting to rape some guy's prostitute sister which I never did so I wasn't going to tell anybody this you know first of all I felt stupid for letting him in second of all I was trying to clean up and it was obvious that you know if I was there I was doing some messed up stuff so I was really embarrassed over it I was never going to tell anybody and really until this risk show came out I, I didn't even think I'd ever share it with anybody so several nights after that happened there I am in that bar I told you about before and, and so I'm here after all of that I'm listening to these guys, you know, talking about selling their college books for weed money, and they're worried about what their mom's going to think, and, you know, it's the equivalent nowadays. I I was working at Kitty Hawk Kite's 43-year-old man with a 26-year-old girl who just graduated college, and she wants to get her iPad screen fixed somewhere so her parents don't realize she broke it, you know? It's like, that's scary, you know? It's like, no, having You know, so anyway... I, uh, I'm sitting there, and they, you know, they, the the night gets more and more smoky. I'm getting, you know, at this point, just gulping whiskey and chewing a pack of cigarettes at a time and scratching in my paper. And they keep bumping my bar still. Yeah, you, know, you got the fuck in here? So they look over at me, and they're like, hey, man, when was the last time you were really scared? And I looked at him. and I was like, I don't fucking get scared of anything. You know, and they were like, really? And so... I was like, yeah, and I finished. I paid my tab, and uh, even though I was broke, you know, it was like the restaurant war. You tip, like, 60 bucks on your $60 tab and walk out of there with all the money that was left for my restaurant venture, and as I'm going to my car, I stopped for a second. I looked up, and I was thinking, you know what? Fuck those guys. I, I might have been scared just a little bit that time. <laughs> yeah. so anyway, thanks. Thanks.
2: Sleeps in mess when you've got the sunrise Wasting
4: time watching infomercials live On Channel 9 Us and Billy Mays, nowhere else to rob Stealing blankets and sleeping in a pile They made the sunrise for people like us
3: So we have an excuse as to why we're still hot. Just so we can feel a little bit better about the neighbor's angry letter on our fourth
1: step. On our fourth fucking step.
2: That is all for this week, folks. We will be back next week with more selections from our shows down there in Norfolk. This is Family of the Year behind me now, and Risk will be back in New York City on August 22nd with comedian Craig Baldo and novelist Amy Sohn. That same night, August 22nd, will be at the NerdMelt Theater in Los Angeles with Michael Showalter, Greg Proops, and Chris Hardwick. Finally, on August 29th, Risk will be in Austin, Texas, at the Out of Bounds Festival. Hey, if you are in Austin and you'd like to pitch us a story, pitch it to risk showcom We're still getting emails from you guys asking, hey, where are the classic episodes of Risk? The episodes of Season 1 and even going into Season 2. Well, every week we are adding more of them, To the album section of iTunes just go to the album section of the iTunes store look for risk and those amazing episodes that got this whole thing started back in 2009 2010 they're just 99 cents each remastered with all the advertising removed and you can find our all-star episodes there too And of course, don't forget that risk is listener-supported. We are a proud member of the MaximumFun.org network. So if you want to help keep risk running, go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member today or make a one-time donation. Just make sure to earmark it for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. is inappropriate for risk until something probably is. Uh, One of the very first people to ever do the show, he said to me, Kevin, would it be inappropriate if I told a story like that? Like starting the
0: theme in the middle of the hosting is not inappropriate.